This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Oakland became the second California school district in as many months to go out on strike. Amongst the issues that are on the table are demands for higher salaries and demands for more counselors and other support staff. But there's also resistance to possible school closures and calls for restrictions on charter school growth. Also this week, Governor Gavin Newsom took the first step to meet one of his campaign promises. He said there should be more openness and transparency in charter school operations, so his office helped negotiate a bill that would do just that. And he's got it placed on a fast track for approval in the legislature. But first, John, let's take a look at the Oakland teacher strike. This is a tough one because the district is struggling financially, and it's not entirely clear where the funds will come from to meet teachers' demands. And the district is losing an estimated $1.5 million a day in state funds because very few students are actually in school. And as uh, all of you know who's listening, uh, the money comes to school district based on the number of students in attendance. So there's pressure to solve this quickly because less money for the district, less money for teachers' demands. But teachers are overwhelmingly backing the strike, Lewis, and one of the core problems is that they don't trust the district's numbers. They're also fed up with years of accepting lower salaries and fewer support people in the classroom than are in districts around them. Yeah, we can't underestimate this aspect of it, the trust factor. So as much as the district puts out figures as they can't afford it, the teachers don't really trust that those are accurate figures. Which is odd because the county has gone over the figures and there's a fact finder who's given the figures, but, but there's just a lot of mistrust that those figures are full and fully disclosed. Yeah, and the fact finder basically said there isn't money to give a 12% raise, which is what the teachers are asking for. We're pleased to have our reporter Teresa Harrington here with us to give us the latest on the strike, which, uh, by the way, may have changed by the time you hear this podcast. But, uh, Teresa, before we get your input, Zadie Stavely, our ace radio reporter, talked to some people on the picket lines on the second day of the strike at Edna Brewer Middle School. Zadie talked to a parent and asked her why she was there. My name's Maureen Boyd, and my kids go to school at Edna Brewer. Uh, I'm here because my kids have had a phenomenal education here, and I believe our teachers are amazing, and our teachers really can't afford to live in the Bay Area. I don't want my kids to lose their teachers. I want these teachers to stay and be experienced and the best teachers possible. And honestly, like, their classes are too big. They need a smaller class size, and I think it's really disappointing the school board won't agree to the best quality education for them. And, you know, the first two months my kids were school here at school, there was no school nurse. And, you know, both my kids needed, like, extra support for various reasons, right? And there was no school nurse because the school district was not providing school nurses. Certainly wasn't the fault of the school. So it's a big problem. And speaking of school nurses, Zadie talked with the nurse, and she told us that she has to visit, like, seven different sites per day as she moves around the district. My name is Corrine Steigerwald, and I'm a school nurse for Oakland Unified. I'm out here because I think our, student, our students deserve more. Um, lower case loads for nurses and counselors, lower class sizes for teachers, just more support and funding in general. In our contract, we're allowed to have 1,350 students. My caseload is around 1,400, um, but we have many schools that don't have a nurse associated with them at all, um, except for like the bare minimum services that have to be done. 
So, Teresa, is that representative of what you've been hearing as you go out and tour schools? Yes, yesterday I was out at the rally and the walk around the district office, and I was just hearing teachers talking amongst themselves about the terrible um, shortage of nurses and how it's affecting students and saying that they only have a nurse maybe one day a week. And one person was joking, yeah, you better not get sick the other four days of the week. And they have kids with asthma, they have kids with EpiPens, and a lot of times the office administrators are helping the kids with these instead of nurses. So that's certainly one issue that is on the bargaining table. But where do things stand right now? Are, are the teachers negotiating with the district? Both sides did meet on Wednesday, and the district did sweeten its offer. Um, previously, it had only been offering um, 5% over three years, and it went up to roughly 8% over three years. But the union wants 12% over three years. And so they're still very far apart. The class size reduction, the district came up a little bit, but not as much as the union wants. And then there was a sort of a compromise on nurses and counselors. So what is the thinking? Where is this money actually going to come from? Is there a view that the state will have to come through with additional funds? What are you hearing out there? Well, certainly the governor already has proposed some additional funds for next year that the district is actually not including in its budget right now because it says, well, we can't be sure that that money's coming. Which is true. Right. And so there could be, as of you know June, more money. This is money for the whole state, and that Oakland would get a chunk of that. Right. But in terms of the pension costs, um, they've already calculated that they could get as much as $4.7 million more. So that would be pretty significant. So they're not including that right now. They are slated to vote Monday night on budget cuts, and these budget cuts are supposed to help fund the teachers' raises and the other concessions. One of the things I find really interesting is that a bunch of people from the charter sector, teachers and others, are actually supporting the strike. They were out on Friday with Keith Brown, head of the teachers' union, expressing their support. What do you make of that? Yes, the Charter Association actually has put out some information saying that um, the teachers actually support the idea that teachers do need to make more money, that the teaching profession is undervalued in society, and that the state needs to give more money to all public schools, including charter schools. Yeah, because, of course, the charter school teachers... uh, I don't think they make much more money than the teachers in the no, district and probably often make less. Right, and they have the same trouble affording housing as the teachers in the district do. So very interesting. New alliances emerging. It is interesting. Really interesting. So thank you, Teresa. We're looking forward to your reports. Hopefully this won't go on too long because yes. the kids can't afford it, the district can't afford it, and really the state can't afford it either. Right. Thank you. So, Lewis, we've talked about one of the factors is distrust and who can trust the numbers. And you wrote this week about the fact finders report that really threw buckets of water on the notion that districts have the money to pay for a union contract along the lines of what the teachers are demanding. Yes, that's correct. Najib Khoury, who's one of the most experienced labor arbitrators in the state, made a very compelling case that what Oakland is going through is what other districts will also go through or are going through that there are just a number of flaws in the funding system, starting with the fact that funding is based on attendance. And actually, we know that in these urban school districts, low-income students, there's lower attendance rates. So right off the bat, they're getting less money than more affluent schools. You know, there's a reason, though, for that, and that is attendance is important because if you just use enrollment, there'll be perhaps an incentive for districts to sort of push out students after the enrollment date. 
But another problem, John, that you've noted is that the funding formula, which allocates money to districts, does not recognize cost of living differences from one district to another. That seems like a problem. Yeah, it's it's hard to survive in the Bay Area on the same amount of funding per student that you get in rural California. That was part of Michael Kerr's original formula. He had a regional cost of living adjustment, but it never made it out of the legislature. And I would think that, you know, if we're talking about more revenue in the future and looking at different ways, I think there'll be a lot of people from L.A. to San Francisco saying, let's get that back in there. Although I have to say that sounds a little bit nightmarish. I mean, the school finance system is so complicated already. Now, you are suggesting we introduce another factor to get cost of living differences. And you could see there'd be a bunch of arguments about reaching agreement on what those differences actually are. Yeah, there are always arguments, and the rural districts would say, hey, we pay for buses. If we transport kids, you don't have to absorb that. There are lots of things, and that's one of the reasons why it didn't survive. But when you look at the case of Oakland, you can see why, in fact, you should reconsider that idea. Well, hopefully this will be one positive thing that comes out of this strike at LAUSD, hopefully not others around the state, but taking a closer look at this financing system and how it could be improved. Well, let's shift gears somewhat and look at charter schools, which have been an issue in uh, Oakland and in LAUSD. About one-third of Oakland students attend charter schools, and uh, the teachers' unions have been pushing the state to require charter schools to operate in a more transparent fashion. And there were some developments this week in Sacramento. There's a bill that the Senate quickly passed and it was negotiated or pushed through by Governor Gavin Newsom, who had promised transparency for charters in his state of the state and in his budget message. And during the campaign, actually. That's right. In fact, he said that there should be transparency in charter schools, and he would work for that. But so what does transparency actually mean? So it means that charters, like other public entities, would have to have open meetings accessible to the public. Their records would be accessible under the public records law, and their board members would face the same conflict of interest laws, preventing them from voting on, say, contracts for which they may be involved as other public entities. Well, this legislation has been kicking around for several years. Governor Brown, in fact, vetoed. Governor Brown vetoed this three times. And, you know, many charter schools already follow these laws. They're required to by some of the chartering entities. They say you have to, and some of them do it voluntarily. So now this law would apply to all of them. And the governor had specific reasons why he vetoed it. I don't believe he was opposed to open meetings. It was their very specific conflict of interest laws that apply to nonprofit boards that are distinct from public entity conflict of interest laws. And so the governor was really stickler on this point. That was Governor Brown. That was Governor Brown, exactly. I think they could have reached an agreement on this, but you know, there's some folks in the charter world who are saying, and I think there's some truth to it, that the California Teachers Association really didn't want a deal last year because it really fit into their narrative that billionaires were funding charter schools to make money and they're Wall Street profiteers. You know, it just fit the message that they were sending. So now we, we will get a deal and that will be removed from the table. What's interesting is that the California Charter School Association did testify before the Senate Education Committee. They said they couldn't totally support it, but they certainly weren't going to oppose what was in this bill. That was kind of significant. Let's hear from Carlos Marquez, who's Director of Government Relations for the Charter School Association, and what he had to say before the Senate Education Committee. 
we are very proud to be able to share with you all today that we do think the legislation that you have before you is a balanced approach that both preserves the core autonomy and flexibility granted to charter schools under the Charter Schools Act that has allowed us to innovate with obviously the requirement, the mandate that we should be doing our business, our work in the light of day. And the legislative process doesn't always lend itself to getting everything that you'd like, which in part is why we're not fully on board as having a support position, but we don't see any major reasons why this legislation shouldn't move forward. We're absolutely eager to codify what so many of our charter schools are already practicing, either voluntarily or as a result of agreements with their authorizers. We hope that clarity and statute will encourage more collaboration at the local level between districts and charters, and hopefully we'll, we'll take this cudgel off the table for our opponents to perhaps de-escalate some of the rhetoric around charter schools being for-profit centers and our board members looking to get into this the work of public education to line their pockets. We couldn't disagree with those assertions more vehemently. So hopefully uh, settling this area in law will put those falsehoods to bed. So it's obvious that this bill was going to become law. And so the question now moves to other restrictions on charter schools. We now will have a commission that Governor Newsom has turned over to State Superintendent Tony Thurman to appoint, and we'll look at other issues like financial impacts and the impacts of charters on schools in which they locate. And this is where the rubber will beat the road, so to speak, and we'll see what kinds of things come out of that towards summer. On another note, another event this week was a joint conference sponsored by the Learning Policy Institute and EdSource. It was in Sacramento, and it was really to highlight a new report that the Learning Policy Institute put out looking at the reforms that Governor Brown introduced, backed by Michael Kirst, the State Board of Education, over the last eight years to kind of take the pulse of where we are now and what needs to be done. It's a very interesting report. You spoke with one of the authors of this. Yes, the paper was authored by Roberta Ferger, Laura Hernandez, and Linda Darling-Hammond. And I sat down with Roberta Ferger and asked her why they decided to write this paper. We're at a transition period, right, after eight years with a governor and state board chair, and significant reforms happening, obviously local control funding formula, but related reforms around standards, around um, teacher preparation, and that it felt like it was time to take stock. Um, there has been amazing research done by PACE, by the Local Control Funding Formula Research Collaborative. What we felt like was needed was a place to bring it together and tell a coherent, hopefully coherent, story of where we are and then what's next. And I think as importantly, there's not a, a single story about how we got here. And um, I've been very struck by the important role that a whole diverse group set of organizations played, from grassroots groups to researchers to policymakers. And really from, from interviews, it's really clear that that ownership and investment in getting here is what has sustained people's uh, efforts in implementation. Implementation is a slog. It's a hard process. You don't necessarily see results quickly, but I think what you've seen is because so many different people, organizations, constituencies were part of getting here, that they're committed to its um, success. Do we have enough evidence to have a sense of whether this is working? I think there's evidence, ample evidence, to say we are on the right track. 
I think we're seeing across from community engagement to shifts in school culture, creating more safe, inclusive, supportive school environments to outcomes themselves, that we are starting to see improvement. Were people feeling good about what had occurred or still big question marks? We certainly didn't hear a lot of critics about the vision. The challenge is, how do we get there and fully live into it? And I think, you know, one of the interesting remarks that we've heard in many, many interviews across the spectrum, as I said, is that people are hungry to know what's working. They're hungry for models, for examples, not just um, to, you know, show us and keep us hopeful, right, but also to learn, to learn from colleagues, to learn from districts and schools that are like theirs. And I think that is a challenge in a state as large as California. We focus on a few key, you know, large districts that get analyzed and studied, but there's a lot of districts in the state. I do have to ask you about this. You mentioned large districts. We've had, in two months, two major teacher strikes in two of the largest districts in the state. And we're also seeing teacher protests in a lot of different parts of the state. Teachers looking for more support services. This has emerged as a major issue. How does that impact the reforms that, that are happening? What the educators are calling for are resources to support their students for the kinds of supports that are needed inside and outside of school and for sufficient pay to keep them with a livable wage in communities that are often quite expensive. And what you're seeing is, is fairly broad-based support for those demands, requests, whatever you want to call them, right? And I think that that is indicative of a shift that is happening in the state that says that our teachers are at the center of moving forward. We need to support them and we need to be partners with them. On that note, thank you, Roberta Ferger, author with Laura Hernandez and Linda Darling-Hammond of The California Way, The Golden State's Quest to Build an Equitable and Excellent Education System. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. So, John, you actually read the paper. What did you think? Well, you know, it took stock. We're into about year five, year six, since the beginning of these reforms with the adoption of the Common Core Standards and the new funding formula and accountability system. and folks looking at it saying, it's going to be a while, it's going to be a decade or so before local control really takes hold in districts and people embrace this new concept. And so it's very upbeat about where we are, but it's also saying, you know, more, we need to double down on strengthening what we've done already. We need to expand training for teachers and clarify how money's spent so that the public understands and find better ways of spreading what districts are doing well and supporting all districts. So there's still a lot of work to do. They make very specific recommendations. And actually, Lewis, it's a very good historical document that looks all the way back to Serrano, the original case back in the 70s that, that ended property tax dependence on property tax and brings us up to today. I found a very good read. Serrano, yeah, where school districts were funded by property taxes and there were big differences depending on the wealth of the districts. That wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Welcome, Kobe. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. We also have music from Ed Source's Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>